You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Northern Light United Church on March 12, 2019. The theme was Way Too Close. Co-hosts for the evening were David Noon and Jeff Smith. Live music was performed by Irish Music. So, our, our first storyteller this evening is John Neary. John's been an employee of the Forest Service for 36 years in Juneau. He's currently director of the Mendenhall Glacier Visitor Center. Very nice. Few people realize that the Forest Service has an international program that sends agency experts in the U.S. to over 100 developing countries on short assignments to provide advice. Uh, even fewer people would actually want to go on such trips because it's common to return home with uninvited guests in your bloodstream <laughs> or your colon. <laughs> That's what it says. <laughs> Nevertheless, John, and his bloodstream and colon have persisted, spending a lot of interesting nights in African jungles and parks. Tonight, his story takes you to southern Nigeria on a dark and stormy night. So this is a story about listening to your gut. <laughs> you know, that little voice inside that tries to give you good advice, the one you usually ignore. There's a couple of important rules when you travel in Africa I'd learned. One is, if you're hiking, you always get back before dark. Uh, the other one is, if you're traveling in a vehicle in remote areas, you always get where you're going before dark. So my Forest Service colleagues and I were pretty anxious to get out on the road and get to the trail that our Nigerian colleagues wanted to show us for its tourism potential. We're really anxious and waiting all day to get going, and when we finally got to the trailhead, it was already 4.30. And this is a tropics, so you know it gets dark around 6 or 6.30. And uh, I had a little trepidation about that late start, but we plunged into it anyway. It's a 12-mile trail to the Kwa River. That's one way. And uh, we started out into this river, right past where we parked the cars, it was only about a foot deep. We crossed on this nice log, got it to the other side, into a fairly dense rainforest. There was an old logging road that they wanted us to look at as part of a potential trail into the Cross River National Park. And uh, it was dense, and there were trees that were flattened by elephants that we had to crawl under or over. There was elephant dung to walk around. Uh, there was also monkeys to entertain and to stop your progress as you're trying to move along the trail. It was not too long down the trail where I found myself and the park guide well out in front of the group. So he paused, looked at my watch, wondered about the rest. They finally came up. They were chatting merrily and having a great time. And I said, you know, do we really have enough time to go 
but I was waved off with that Nigerian sort of whateverness. Let's just keep going. So we did. And about an hour later, I found myself again way out in front of the group with that same guide. And now the sky has got hues of orange and pink. It's just sort of crumbling into darkness. <laughs> I pull out my headlamp and wait again for the group to come up, and they do. And I plead with them a bit about, you know, maybe we should reconsider this destination. And uh, after some, some talk about that, they agreed, and we turned back, just as the thunder started to rumble. We turned back and went just a short distance. When the first raindrops started to fall, they were nice and widely spaced, you know? They're real refreshing. They land on your face and you feel, oh, this is good, because it's tropical heat and we're a bit saturated anyway. So it doesn't take long before the widely spaced drops are coming very frequently. In fact, it's a torrential downpour. There are claps of bolts of lightning and claps of thunder, and they're getting progressively closer to each other as a storm moves in right overhead. We get down the trail just a little bit further, and the rain is coming so densely now that it's just thundering from all the leaves that it's bouncing off, and we're walking through a river of water. The trail has disappeared. At, at that time, I heard something, and I'm sure m my Nigerian counterparts knew exactly what it was. It was a trumpeting sound. I was about fifth in line. The park director jumps behind me. He grabs my arm and pushes me forward because I'm the one with the headlamp. And he says, shine ahead, let's, let's see it. They understand what the sound of a frightened elephant is like. That was the first time I had ever heard that sound. But I, I also quickly learned what it, what it was. As I'm thinking to myself, two different thoughts. One is, this is really exciting. I had worked in Rwanda for a year, building trail through a rainforest. There were forest elephant signs all around us. I would never saw them. They're that secretive. But at the same time, three AAA batteries against a couple of tons of elephant flesh doesn't stand up really good. So I'm also pretty scared. We plunge ahead, more bolts of lightning, thunder clapping, freeze frame, horror show flick faces staring back at me. We moved down the trail a bit, never saw the elephants. They had trampled just opposite from us, and so there was quite a relief that I could see that trail where they went in the opposite direction. But now we still had to go a couple hours back to the vehicles, and we had to cross all those same barriers we got across on the way, but it's dark, and it's raining, and it's a river of water. Each one of those little sloughs is now a much bigger, deeper torrent, and we're crossing on first all twos and then all fours, and finally we get back to the vehicle. It's like three hours later, and there's that one stream that was about a foot deep. It's now about four or five feet deep, and it's a muddy torrent. A couple of the guides, against my better judgment, plunged in with just some sticks trying to find their way across this raging torrent. I remember looking out with my headlamp trying to light their way, and, you know, they're dark-skinned, <laughs> dark uniform. All I saw was four scared white eyes moving across the river. They got to the other side, though, of where the vehicles were parked. And then they had to grab some sticks, shuttle back across the same river, grab each of us linked arms. We're up to our chest in this muddy torrent, trying not to be crocodile bait if we get flushed down the river. We made it back to the vehicles, and I thought, okay, I think it's over. I think we can 
be at the hotel in about an hour. We made it down maybe 15 minutes down the road before we saw a fire burning in the middle of the road. The driver hits the brakes quickly before I realize what's going on. We hear the sound pop, 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 pop. He slams it into reverse, hits the accelerator, and we're going now backwards much faster than an SUV ever should go in reverse. We're all ducked in the back seat because those were gunshots we just heard. He gets back some distance, turns around, and flees back in high speed to the nearest town. The consensus is we're supposed to wake up the police and have them escort us to the hotel. So we do, and the cops pile into their little Renault with automatic weapons sticking out of all four windows. It's like Keystone's cops, but it's a, we're a caravan now, so we head back down the road toward the bandits were. The fire is out. There's just ashes there. We continue past another half hour, a little anticlimactic it seemed, but the cops peel off and head back to where they come from. About a half hour later, we arrive at the hotel. It's now 3 a.m. The staff are really worried, but they're also really kind. They offer us showers and to do our laundry. They offer us a nice meal. I decide I'm only going to accept the cold beer, though, because you know, I decided I'd also finally need to listen to my gut, and I did not want food poisoning. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you, John. Our next storyteller is Keith Palkey. Keith Palkey grew up in Colorado. He started working summers in Alaska in 1977 and moved to Juneau in 1981. He is retired after a career with the state of Alaska and now spends his winters playing with locals and summers playing with tourists. His story takes place on his honeymoon and it's titled, It Works! Don't worry, it's rated PG. So I've always loved animals ever since I was a little kid. And not just uh, the fuzzy kittens and puppies, but rats and mice and gerbils, and much to my mother's chagrin, uh, reptiles and amphibians. I was always chasing lizards and frogs and turtles and bringing them home, trying to keep them as pets. In high school, I had a part-time job working at a pet store, and I spent all my money on cages and aquariums and critters. By my senior year, I had a room full of animals, including a caiman and a Burmese python. I figured, because I did reasonably well in high school and I liked science and I had a lot of pets, so I could get into vet school. So I applied to, I enrolled in the pre-vet program at Colorado State University, which is about 40 miles from where I grew up in Boulder. My poor mother was stuck taking care of my menagerie while I was in the dorms. She had grown up on a farm and wasn't squeamish about animals, but had never anticipated taking care of a South American alligator and a six-foot Burmese python. The pre-vet program, all my classes had the same 350 students all competing for 90 openings. I stuck with it for a year and a half before I got a C in first semester organic chemistry, which pretty much eliminated me from the chance of getting into vet school. So I had to think on what I could change my major to and not have pissed away two years of college. My first love had always been herpetology, the study of reptiles and amphibians, but even though I knew there were jobs there were few and far between. So I figured, aha, fish, that's the closest thing to reptiles that there might actually be a job in. So I changed my major to fish biology. 
And uh, fisheries classes were much less stressful, much smaller than the pre-vet classes. Instead of a full year of organic chemistry, we had a semester of applied organic chemistry where we learned practical things like how to test your own blood alcohol content. In 1978, I graduated from CSU, got my first job with ADF&G, and moved to the only state in the United States where there are no reptiles. In 1981, I moved to Juneau to work on my master's at UAJ. I finally had my own place, so I had my pets shipped up from my roommate in Fort Collins who'd been taking care of the now eight-foot pair of Burmese pythons. I kept these in a large cage in my living room, and they proved very effective at weeding through potential girlfriends. <laughs> Eventually, one of them proved tougher than a pair of pythons, and I married my lovely wife, Sandy, in 1988, and we went to Florida on our honeymoon that fall. When people think of honeymoon in Florida, you usually think of beaches, Mai Tais, maybe uh, Disney World. Well, for me, the highlight was going to be the Everglades, a big old swamp full of lizards and snakes and turtles and alligators. We rented a car in Tampa and headed south towards the Everglades, and we got to a visitor center called Shark Valley. Shark Valley has a 15-mile-long road leading right into the middle of the Everglades that's closed to personal cars. You can only go in on tour buses or bicycles or by foot. So we hopped on this tour tram. It's an open vehicle with about 20 passengers, a guide, and a driver. The, the guide, the first thing he says was, well, I don't know much about the Everglades, but if you want to know about World War II fighter planes, I'm your guy, because <laughs> he had just gotten transferred from the USS Arizona Memorial in Pearl Harbor. But He proceeded to talk to us about a lot of the wildlife we saw on the way, including alligators, and he talked about how, how a mother alligator will guard the nest and protect the eggs from predation. And I had read a lot, and I knew that this was true, and I thought, yeah, this guy knows something. And then he went on to say that um, after the eggs hatch, the baby alligators swim out into the water, and the mother continues to protect them, and if the babies feel threatened, they'll make a noise and call their mother back. At this, I rolled my eyes and thought, oh, this is just a bunch of malarkey, because even before the internet, I was, I knew everything, you know. And, um, and then he proceeds to say, Bob, our driver here, is a herpetologist, and he can make this noise, he can mimic the noise that a baby alligator makes when it's threatened. Well, my first thought here is, aha, this is the kind of job you can get with a degree in herpetology, <laughs> driving a bus in a swamp. So he hands the microphone to Bob, and Bob goes, ooh, ooh. And all the other guests are very impressed, and I'm just rolling my eyes, thinking they're really telling us a tall tale here. Well, Sandy and I went on south. We played in Key Largo for a week or so till we were out of money, and then we were heading back towards Tampa. We got back to Shark Valley, and we decided to go in again, but this time on our own. So we rented some bicycles. And this was really great, because as soon as we were out of sight of the visitor center, we were all by ourselves in the biggest swamp in North America. And a bicycle is a pretty good way to see wildlife, because you move quickly but quietly. Now, Sandy had been with me for a week and a half and had a pretty good idea of what would happen 
if if we saw any wildlife, you know, because I'd been chasing lizards and turtles for the last week. Well, she should have known what happened when we saw some baby alligators basking by the side of the road. I jumped off my bike and I grabbed this baby alligator and I held it up to show her. She wisely backed away from this strange man harassing an endangered species in a national park. <laughs> I had a firm but gentle grip on the little guy so he couldn't bite me, but he was able to take a very large gulp of air and then proceeded to make an exact mimic of Bob the herpetologist. <laughs> ooh, ooh. And out of the swamp, about 20 yards away, come this mama alligator lunging towards me as fast as she could. I took that baby alligator and I threw it in the swamp as quick as I could and I go, it works! And I got on the bike and we rode it out there as fast as we could. And in the 25 years since, I've never harassed another alligator. And I make a point of always listen to my guides and especially the bus drivers if they have a college degree. <laughs> All right, thank you, Keith. Uh, our next storyteller is Alan Cleveland. Uh, Alan is uh, a local songwriter who is a big fan of Mudrooms. This is his first time telling a story at a Mudrooms event, so ever. Uh, and I, 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 this is as close as Alan and I have ever been physically, but we've, we've spoken on the phone, and he's a lot of fun to talk to on the phone, so if you ever get a chance to do that, call him up. Until then, enjoy his story. All right, first off, I don't honestly belong on the stage. I hate this place. I hate being in front of people, and that is why I'm here. Aside from that, when the uh, announcement went out for the title of the show, everybody heard way too close. But in the email, it said, way to close. <laughs> so, I haven't rehearsed anything because I didn't know what we were going to talk about. <laughs> However, the fact that you brought me and John Neary in the same room together, big bad. I'm a cab driver. He's, he's the forest service. We're like mortal enemies, like dogs and cats, <laughs> right? We're way too close. And then he gets up and he starts talking about thunder. And I'm like, this is my story. He's going to tell my story right in front of everybody. Right? So here's how it goes. I am an electrophobe. I am absolutely afraid of electricity. I don't like being this close to the mic. I don't like messing with the car battery. I don't like electricity. I am an astrophobe. I hate lightning. One of the reasons that I live in southeast Alaska is you almost never see the stuff out here, right? Almost never. I love this place. And uh, at some point back in the early 80s, I actually had a job working on the Snedisham power line, which, yeah, I didn't belong there either. But I didn't have anything else to do, <laughs> and somebody offered me a job. So I got to ride in helicopters every day and play around with bears. And But there's there's two terminals on the either side of the Taku River, where that power line comes in and it dead ends into the buildings and then goes under the river and comes back up on the other side. And we were working on those terminals one year and uh, sandblasting the towers and painting and all that stuff. And 
at one point, because I had been a laborer and I'd been on the ground the whole time, I never really got near the hot wires. And a lot of times when we did work around the wires, we would always have an outage, a planned outage. And uh, so I got up there and was hauling sand up and down this 40-foot ladder to fill the sandblaster. And at one point, I was standing about probably eight inches away from a live conductor on 138,000-volt power line coming out of Snedishoe. <laughs> And my buddy behind me started, one of my coworkers started screaming, get down, get down, get down, get down, get down. And of course, we've got compressors running. We've got all kinds of noise up there. So I didn't hear him until he was just literally screaming in fear with like tears coming out of his eyes. And I turned around and I saw him and he was, you know, screaming, get down. And I looked at him and he's like, the line is hot. And then I got down and got out of the way. <laughs> years later, years upon years later, he and I used to play music together. And years later, I was at the airport and I'm walking along and I hear this voice. And I recognize the voice. This is, I mean, 20 years had passed. There's no way on earth that I would have recognized him by sight. There's no way that he recognized me by sight. But we had both been driving cab to, around each other in town for probably a couple of years. And, uh, and I heard his voice and I stopped and I, I was like, are you Willie Sportell? He's like, yeah, who wants to know? I said, Alan Cleveland. And he goes, no way, <laughs> no way. <laughs> so that's my experience with electricity. I don't like the stuff. I don't want to be around the stuff. Now in the mid nineties, I went down to uh, Southern Oregon to spend some time, visit friends, write some songs play some music, and pick morel mushrooms. And we were up on the side of the mountain one day, me and a gal and her kid, and I heard this rumble. And these guys had always teased me. Every time there was lightning, they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to sit out here and watch it hit the field. I'm like, I am not sitting anywhere and watching lightning. You find me under the bed. And we were up on the side of this mountain, and I heard a rumble, which would... That little drum over there would sound really great. And I said, we need to go. And my girlfriend, her son, looked at me and laughed, thinking, you know, here he goes again. Big chicken. The next thing that happened was we were inside of like a lightning bolt hitting the ground. And it is not anything like you'd imagine, like you don't hear thunder. When the lightning hits where you're standing, it is like you're standing inside of an arc welder. And it just, just this horrible sound. And everything smells like burnt metal. <laughs> and when your eyes pop back to life, it is white, it is solid white light. And when your eyes come back, you look around at your friends and you take off running down the hill as fast as you can, tripping over each other and picking each other up and climbing into your car and driving down the road at, you know, 80 miles an hour down the logging road. Nobody's saying anything until you get down to the base of the mountain. And at that point, you breathe and you laugh. That's way too close.
I don't know, Alan, you're a natural. You even, even had John laughing. Come on. Now you're going to come back as a veteran storyteller. Our, our next speaker is Randy Coleman. Randy grew up in Michigan and lived in the Washington, D.C. area for 10 years, where he met his wife, Lisa. They have lived in Juneau since 1990, where they have raised their twins, Catherine and Laura. Randy's story is about an incident that truly did come way too close. Please welcome Randy. So um, in the fall of 04, a bear got into our garbage two nights in a row. On the third day, I'm jumping in the can to make room for one more bag when the can tips over. The lip of it, the edge, whacks me in the leg. It hurt. I didn't even notice that I got a tiny cut there on my shin. Three weeks later, I started developing flu symptoms. Two days after that, I left work with a fever of 104. It topped out that night at 105.1, complete with delirium dreams. Next morning, I called my doctor's office. Uh, think you can drive yourself here right now? They gave me a liter of fluids IV, a shot of one antibiotic, a bottle of others to take four times a day, and told me, come back every day at 11. By the third day, I felt much better, but my leg looked awful. Below the knee, it was all red and swollen. There were huge blisters hanging off of each side, and there was a black spot centered right on the initial wound. So I call in. Uh, forget about 11 o'clock. Think you can drive yourself here right now? Now, I had read about necrotizing fasciitis, flesh-eating bacteria. It kills 25% of those who get it. Half the rest lose a limb. So when I got to the doc, I, said, I asked, is that what I have? Uh, think you can drive yourself to Bartlett right now? What about my shot of antibody? Just go now. They'll be waiting for you. Okay. I was admitted about 10 o'clock in the morning. As she was making me comfortable in my room, the nurse, every time she caught a glance of my leg, would go, oh, this looks bad. <laughs> so, think it's necrotizing fasciitis? <gasps> Let's stay positive, shall we? Now, there was only one surgeon on duty in Bartlett that day, a vacation replacement, and she was busy. I had to wait forever. Meanwhile, that black spot is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. My wife, Lisa, shows up about you know, mid-afternoon. Finally, about five or six, the doc walks in, takes one look at my leg, 
puts a forefinger on my ankle, the other one on my knee, and says, basically, everything between here and here is going to have to come off. I think I can save your foot, but it's probably not going to work very well. So is it necrotizing fasciitis? I can't imagine it's anything else. And it keeps going on and on like that, back and forth. Every answer making the case sound more and more ominous. Yeah, we could try a medevac. Might die on the way. Might have to amputate, maybe above the knee, possibly at the hip to make sure they get it all. <sighs> Lisa asks, so is that the worst that can happen? <laughs> oh, no. We're going to be in there cutting away the bad while leaving the good, and we could easily nick a blood vessel. The infection could get in his bloodstream. It could shut down his kidneys, liver, heart. He could die on the table. So it took him a few more hours to assemble on a Friday night two more surgeons to help with this procedure. They show up in the room about, I don't know, 11 or so with a release, right? It's almost all legal boilerplate, except at the end there's a whole bunch of blank lines where they write in pen and ink the specific risks you have to acknowledge and accept. The last one says, death. <laughs> We're, we'll, <clears throat> we'll go away for a few minutes and give you two a chance to think it over. I don't need to think it over. I just need time to cry and pray. Where'd that come from? I'd never prayed before in my life. I did cry, though, once we were alone and pound on the wall a bit. Then I got up, held Lisa, and we slow danced around the room for a bit while I hummed Unchained Melody, the tune we danced to solo at our wedding. And uh, as they put me on the gurney, I figure, well, maybe it's time to pray. Hello, it's me, Randy. I know, I know, I know, you've never heard from me before. So I would not blame you if you just changed the channel right now. But look, if I got to lose my leg, I guess I got to be okay with that. But please leave me enough of a stump to attach a prosthesis to. And, uh, oh yeah, I might not wake up. I guess I got to be okay with that too. But you got to do this for me. My girls are only seven. They need a dad. If it's my time, make sure Lisa finds someone else who will love my girls as much as I do. About then, they put the mask on my face. And I was out in about two seconds. And it really, really seemed that I was out for about two seconds more. When I open my eyes, I'm starting to come around. All three docs have their face right in mine, screaming over and over, 
We didn't have to cut off your leg. We didn't have to cut anything. It wasn't necrotizing fasciitis. You still got your leg. It was just cellulitis. And I'm going over and over. I still got my leg. No, I still got my leg. There really is a God. Four days later, I was discharged. The same nurse wheeled me down to the lobby. When we get there, she leans in. Randy, I want you to know, a couple years back, I had to travel east alone to help out my mom. My husband called me from Juneau to say he'd cut his leg exactly where you did. Over the next several weeks, he called several times and described his symptoms. They progress exactly like yours did. But it was necrotizing fasciitis. And they cut off his leg. But it still killed him. I'm so glad we were able to save you. Thank you. You're listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. These way too close stories were recorded on March 12, 2019 at the Northern Light United Church. To see if you have a story you'd like to share, look up the dates and themes of our upcoming shows on Facebook or at mudrooms.org. got Guy Archibald, who is a veteran storyteller, coming up next. Guy grew up in the mountains of Colorado and first came to uh, southeast Alaska in 1983. He's lived in Wrangell in Sitka and then since 2007 in Juneau. Most people who know Guy comment that they see him smiling a lot, always seems to be smiling, which is true because I saw you recently somewhere and I was like, what is he smiling about? Because there was no one standing around him, but he was just, just grinning. He likes to smile because no matter what else is happening, it makes him feel good. It also makes most people around him feel good. The smile does make some people a little nervous, and that also makes Guy feel pretty good. <laughs> and this is the story behind the smile. So a couple days ago, I lost my voice. So if you see it running around out there, uh, let me know. Um, so this story starts very early one Saturday morning when I was about six years old. I was asleep in my bed. At the time, that was located down in the corner of the unfinished basement of my parents' house, basically the laundry room. The rest of my family was upstairs asleep in their nice bedrooms. 
if this seems like kind of an odd arrangement, I have to tell you that I'm the youngest of many siblings. And by youngest, I mean I'm a lot younger. I so stuck out from the family demographic that I often referred to my older siblings as my significantly older brothers, or more often, just the SOBs. <laughs> I was the walking reminder that 99.9% .9 protection is not 100% prevention. <laughs> I'm a 0.1%er. Anyways, it was that totally quiet, silent time of the morning about an hour before dawn. The whole world is asleep. And suddenly I woke up and I smelled smoke. Not the normal comforting smoke of the wood stove, but something very different. So I figured I better check it out. So I got out of bed and I ran across the basement to the wood stove down there, but it was cold, the fire was out, it wasn't the source. So I figured I better check the wood stove upstairs in the living room. So I ran back across the basement up the stairs and I went to pass the kitchen and oh man, the kitchen is on fire. Apparently my father had gotten up earlier and plugged in the percolator and he went back to bed and fell asleep. In the meantime, it had shorted out, melted the plastic base, it had burst into flames, it caught the Formica countertop on fire, and the whole thing was beginning to lap at the upper cabinets. Oh man, so I, I hung a quick right and I ran down the hall towards my parents' room. And for those of you who don't know, a percolator is a device used to make coffee. <laughs> Had to back up. It's designed on the principle that you can safely combine electricity and water 99% of the time. So I run down the hall to my parents' bedroom and the door was slightly open and my parents were sound asleep. But suddenly I had a dilemma. You see, us children were never allowed to step foot into our parents' bedroom. It was a forbidden zone. They used to enforce it with weird little sayings like, you better not be caught dead in there. <laughs> Never was quite sure what that meant. So I'm standing there, and I had only been in my parents' bedroom once in my entire life, and that was the time I decided I needed to hide from my mom. And under the bed in the forbidden zone was the last place you'd ever look. Now, before you judge my six-year-old self, I had good reason to hide from my mom. She was a retired nurse, except for she continued to practice on us children, <laughs> primarily in the form of giving us shots, vaccinations, booster shots, penicillin, tetracycline, if we so much sneezed or coughed. She had this old syringe kit from the 1940s. Glass, stainless steel, and the one needle that had been used literally dozens of times. When the SOBs and I would see her lock that needle on and then slowly flame it with her Zippo cigarette lighter, 
we disappeared. So, by the way, hiding under the bed in the forbidden zone fooled my mom for exactly the 10 seconds it took her to drag me out by one ankle, hike down the seat of my pants, and jab me with that thing. So anyways, I'm standing at the door of their bedroom. I can't walk in. My parents are asleep. Mouths hanging open, tangled up in the blankets, limbs all askew. So I take a deep breath. I open my mouth. And then right then, this voice comes into my head. This voice I had never heard before. And it said, wait a minute. This is going to be so cool. So I took a moment to appreciate the situation as the kitchen's blazing away. <laughs> and I readied the camera inside my head. Fire! <laughs> Click. <laughs> there it is for all eternity. My, both my parents in a blanket suspended a foot and a half above the bed. <laughs> Their eyes are wide open. A nightstand table lamp is at a 45-degree angle, headed to the floor. I'm not sure what happened next, except for something slammed me up against the opposite hallway wall. But I knew two things for certain. First of all, I had better figure out a way to cover up this big smile on my face. Or, as my parents would say, there's going to be hell to pay. The second thing I learned, for the first time I knew that deep down inside me, there was a little part of me, and it was 100% ornery, and maybe just a little bit evil. <laughs> I hear that voice a lot. And I listen to it a lot. So the next time you see me standing by myself, and for no other reason, I got a big smile on my face. Now you know. Our next storyteller is Tom Rastel. Although not for some time, he's been told he looks like Christian Bale or Russell Crowe. His receding hairline, on the other hand, is doing a solid Bruce from Die Hard 3, right before Bruce became the Silver Fox. Please welcome Tom. So at some point on my adventures, I realized that I'd come across the big five in various survival situations of various intensities. Those are the five animals that kind of all the tourists want to see. And so I will present those. There is one slight substitution in there, but hopefully the diehards don't mind. So for the first one, um, I was up in Denali and I was working at the hotels up there. And shortly after getting there, I got fired because I went to go get an elderly gentleman a matching stuffed animal for his twin granddaughters. So I left our store to go to another one. Um, and I've never been fired since, and I still stand by that decision. Um, <laughs> But I was feeling kind of dejected. I was 19 or 18, and my hands were in my pockets, and I was walking between the hotels and the National Park Service to see if I could find employment. 
And I couldn't, if you've never been that trail, it's about a two mile trail that gets pretty remote for being right next to a major highway. So on my way back, I was walking and my shoulders were slumped. My head was down. I was trying to figure out what I was gonna do with myself. I already had a return flight like three months later. I was gonna have to fix that. I was gonna have to figure out where to spend the night because um, I was getting kicked out of my housing. And as I'm walking along, I realize that my feet aren't alone on this trail and that there's some hooves in front of me. And I look up and I'm standing in the shadow of a full-grown mama moose. And I knew it was a mama because we'd heard about her in the area and fortunately her calves weren't nearby. So I knew that I was supposed to get between, I was supposed to get the trees between me and the moose and that wasn't gonna happen because the trees were six feet away and the moose was right there, I could have kissed it. And sensing my consternation, the moose decided to get off the trail and go behind the cedar tree. So the, the moose must have known the rules as well. <laughs> And I said thank you as I walked down the trail. Not too long after that, I was hiking up Mount Healy because I heard you could get a great view of Denali, which is the tallest mountain in the world, but that's a story for another time. And I was climbing down these boulders on the backside and I saw some doll sheep about half a football field away. And I was like, oh, that's cute. It was a mom and her kid and they're adorable. So I've seen doll sheep before and I head on my way, but it's kind of slow going and tiring. So I decided to take a breather and take in the cute little doll sheep that's over there and it's all cute and the mama and the kid are walking away from me right by this boulder and then the daddy doll sheep, very protective light, comes out from behind the boulder and stands very stiff and all I can see are these giant horns pointed in my direction. And all these facts start running through my head like they can run 35 miles per hour on uneven terrain and I'm slowly scrambling down this boulder field and I can hear that sound that's in all the videos in the visitor center where the two uh, doll sheep run into each other and slam together and I'm not even made of horn, I'm made of soft fleshy bits. So I do my best to diffuse the situation and move slightly away from the doll sheep but I was kind of committed to this valley, I wasn't going back up. And after it was touch and go there for a bit, the doll sheep very politely kneeled down on its front elbows and started nibbling grass, thereby continuing its protective duties but letting me know that I was okay. A few years later, I was here in Juneau, uh, camping out at Montana Creek, and I woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't breathe. Now I was about eight inches off the ground on this army cot, and there was just something suffocating me. And before I realized what had happened, it had left, um, but a bear had fallen on my head. <laughs> Um, my, my tent was set up with a tree right next to it, and I guess the bear had tried to sneak between my tent and the tree. The tree went out and it pushed it on my head. There was nothing much I could do, so I told myself I wouldn't die and went back to sleep. <laughs> a few years after that, I went back up to Denali in the shadow of the tallest mountain in the world, but that's a story for another time. And we had a camp cook living out in the middle of nowhere, and he'd gone kind of crazy, so I was covering his shifts for him, and there wasn't much to do out there. It was light all night, so I'm like, I'm going to hike to that mountain over there. So two and a half hours of crossing the mosquito-filled tundra later, I made it to a river. It's actually the same river Christopher McCandless made it to the other side on. That's the end of the wild guy. And I was about to turn back, but I was like, yeah, I'll go around one bend. And I head slightly north, and there's this giant tree that's fallen across the river. So it's like, oh, that's cool. So I hike across the tree, and my mountain's right there. And as I'm hiking up this thing, the wind died out, and so the mosquitoes are everywhere. And I'm swatting my right shoulder, and I'm getting 200 mosquitoes. I'm swatting my left shoulder, and I'm getting 200 mosquitoes. And by the time I make it back to my right shoulder, there's another 200 mosquitoes to swat. I realized if I had rolled my ankle or something, I probably would have died of anemia. And I was so focused on the mosquitoes, there's this light breeze as I'm getting near the top of the mountain. It's like, oh, that's nice. And I look up, and there's three wolves in attack formation. And I don't know why I know that's attack formation. It's something I learned in third grade, but that's attack formation. 
And so I get real big and I start hooting and hollering and making a general ruckus. And I scared the front two and they jumped back, but they didn't even need to make eye contact with the alpha. They knew they were going to get in more trouble with him than me. And they immediately start circling me. Um, so I knew not to run and I kind of make it down over this lip and I hopefully was out of sight, but the trees were like 20 feet away. So that's when I start running and I made it down to the bottom of the mountain and my shoe got stuck in the mud right by the river. And I was like, leave the shoe behind. You've seen this in the movies, leave the shoe behind. Um, but I wasn't about to walk across all that tundra without my shoes. So against my better judgment, I fished it out and made it across the tundra. So I decided to never hike again without bear spray. So I'm down in Portland hiking without bear spray because it's Portland. And I was going up this hike called Tanner Butte and I started at 2 a.m. and I'm getting near the summit around 5.30 and I realize I can eat my high mountain breakfast cheese with the sunrise and have a great view of the gorge and it's gonna be wonderful. So my headlamp's on and I'm looking for this trail because the trail proper kind of circumvents the butte and there's this scramble that goes up the mountain. Now I've never found that, I hope it doesn't ruin the story, but my headlamp's on and I'm looking for this trail and I'm like, is the trail here? Is the trail here? Mountain lion. <laughs> and I'm standing about eight feet from a very curious kitty cat wondering what this floating light is doing up near its, its, uh, its bed. Um, so I take a big sigh and I'm like, really? And I get all big and start hooting and hollering and make a general ruckus and the kitty cat doesn't even flinch. It was just curious about the light. After what seems like forever for me, because I'm not backing down, I have a cat and I know what that's like. Um, <laughs> its eyes start to sag and it realizes if it's gonna go back to sleep, it has to leave. So it turns and I see its shoulder and I see its haunch and then it's gone. And that's when I was scared because I realized I'm about 10 feet away from a mountain lion and I have no idea what its temperament is. Uh, fortunately, it was some time before I had up the nerve to run back down the mountain, which I eventually did, but I walked slowly away. So those are my five, um, the doll sheep, the moose, the bear, the wolves, and the mountain lion. And I still have time to tell you how Denali is the tallest mountain in the world. But I guess that's a story for another time. All right, our final storyteller for the evening is Nels Yuri. Nels Yuri hails from Kodiak Island. In the summertime, he is a Bristol Bay drift fisherman, and for the rest of the year, he explores Alaska and the world. Last year, Nels met his girlfriend, Gabriella, before the sockeye season, and two months later, they found themselves on an open-ended adventure through South America. As you can probably guess, they've had their fair share of close calls. None, however, affected their trip more than a three-day road trip in Peru. Peru, where way too close happened way too often. To put it in perspective, uh, a week prior to our road trip, I had fallen into a Cayman-filled stream in the Amazon. I had my bags stolen, almost stolen, out of a bus station and finally, I had taken a lovely visit to a remote South American hospital to get stitches. 10 out of 10 would not recommend that last one on TripAdvisor. So Gabby and I had this crazy idea. We're like, okay, we're in Cusco and we wanna go to all these mountains, so let's rent a car, you know? And looking back on this decision, I think altitude affects your judgment-making skills. 
Day one, we arrive at the rental car agency and the guy tells us, he's like, well, there's a slight problem. Uh, we already gave your automatic RAV4 to someone else, so we're just gonna put you in a manual Hyundai. And uh, Gabby's like, oh, no problem. But I'm kind of thinking to myself, man, I have not driven manual in three months. And uh, 20 minutes into leaving Cusco, uh, I had brought us face to face with two buses and Gabby had come face to face with the realization that I do not know how to drive manual that well. <laughs> so after uh, referring to my driving as stressful and uh, a death wish, Gabby was driving on day two. <laughs> now we get up into the remote mountains and we are far past civilization. The nearest village, the last village that we passed was at least 10, 15 miles away. And we are so elated to be up here. There are hundreds if not thousands of alpacas and llamas roaming around and we have the camera out and we're snapping i'm snapping and gabby's pulling up this this hill and uh these aren't paved roads by any mean and the car starts to lurch a little bit and it starts to slow down and i'm like shift gabby you're the one that knows how to drive manual And we realize that there's a problem. And uh, we kind of get out, we check the car, and we realize that we have a flat. We're like, oh, okay, no problem. We have a spare tire. This should be no problem. And uh, Gabby, since she was driving and I was feeling petty, was changing the tire. <laughs> and uh, no, I was helping, don't worry. And uh, as we're going to it, we get to the last bolt, and we realize that this car had anti-theft bolts on them. And so Gabby checks the kit, and we are not in possession of the anti-theft socket. So we have five bolts out of six off of this tire, a flat tire, and we are in the remote Andes Mountains. We do not have cell service. We have limited snacks and water, and that's when the panic sets in. So I start tearing the car apart. I'm like, it has to be in here somewhere. Gabby's just, you know, calmly, like, filing through things, sorting through things. And I'm just freaking out. I'm like, okay, where is it? What are we doing? And I'm like, okay, I've seen the MacGyver movie one time, so I think maybe I can, I can like rig something to get on this, the bolt and we can change this tire. And Gabby just looks at me and she's like, Nels, one of us is going to have to walk. And when she said one of us, I knew it was not her. <laughs> and so I'm just, I'm stressing at this point. It's cold. We're at altitude. And I start bundling up, realizing that I've known this girl for four months and I'm about to walk across the high Andes to try and rescue us and never thought we'd be in this situation in our relationship, but here we are. And Gabby, she looks at me and she's like, here Nels, I have something for you. And so she gives me the last two altitude sickness pills that we have and a pack of Oreos. This is my last sacrificial meal. <laughs> And I don't know what it was and which one of us had the idea. I think it was me from being too scared to walk down in. But I was like, let's just check the car one more time. And somewhere we had miscommunicated that we had lost or that we had not checked the glove box. So we checked the glove box and we have the socket and we are, we are back in action. The road trip is on. So instead of being responsible travelers and heading back into civilization, we decide let's go even more remote. We're already having so much fun up here. We keep driving and keep driving, and for the rest of day two, and the majority of day three, there were absolutely no problems. It wasn't until we got to Cusco in the pouring rain, an odd foreshadowing of what was to come, that I realized 
I was no longer in possession of my passport. And as a traveler, that's your key to getting back to the United States of America. But not only did I not have my passport, I did not have Gabby's passport either. I had, I had uh, dubbed myself as the official passport holder of the trip, and I uh, thought that was a great idea. But I realize now, after putting this woman in two potential car accidents, after getting very upset with her in, in the high Indies when we were changing a tire, that I now have to tell her that I don't have her passport. We have not showered in a couple of days. We have been hiking, we're sore. And I just look at her and I'm like, Gabby, I don't have your passport. And she just kind of looks at me with a blank stare. She's like, let's check the car. We check the car and it's not there. And we ride back to our hostel in complete silence. After a beer, the conversation kind of started to come a little bit more naturally. We had to craft a plan to somehow can get new passports. We had lost ours. And you know, thanks to the US Embassy and some pieces of paper that served as our documentation, we got back to Lima and got passports. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, wow, this kid was way too close to losing his girlfriend. You know, I was. But if you ask Gabby how uh, she would refer to this story, she'd probably just tell you that it was strike one for me. This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on March 12, 2019. The theme for the evening was Way Too Close. Special thanks to Northern Light United Church, COPA, and The Rookery for supporting our live shows, and to Lucid Reverie for hosting our website, mudrooms.org. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard, Alita Bus, Tom Cosgrove, Sarah Hannon, Melissa Griffiths, Jeff Smith, and David New. I'm Rich Moniak. Have a good night.